to have something there that is just I just perceive as being so much bigger and more important than me has been pretty bloody educational and wanting to watch him grow and be a good person and I don't know it's just it's like the the most interesting project I've ever done but it's one that is also the most heartbreaking because I can never capture every second of it you know there's no all the photos in the world aren't gonna take you back to what it feels like to look at them on this one particular day and then the next day they're bigger and they've changed somehow you know it's it's beautiful it's heartbreaking and beautiful Hello and welcome to this In Conversation episode of Shameless, the pop culture podcast for smart women who love dumb stuff. Today on the show, we're joined by the formidable force that is Clementine Ford. Of course, you're likely to know Clem for her writing on feminism and as the author of Fight Like a Girl and Boys Will Be Boys. But who is Clem Ford behind the writing and the activism we know so well? We sat down with Clem in her Melbourne home to chat all about her work, yes, but what it was like growing up all over the Middle East and how motherhood changed everything. Just setting the scene very quickly on this one too before we jump in, we recorded this in Clem's apartment with a train line nearby, which you may hear very occasionally through this chat, but we think you will love it all the same. Also, a very quick content note too, this chat does deal with issues associated with disordered eating and may be triggering for some listeners. Here's Clem. Clementine Ford, welcome to Shameless In Conversation. I'm so thrilled to be here. Thank you for coming to my house. We're <laughs> thrilled. It is beautiful in here. Oh, Very like warehousey, but cool and modern at the same <laughs> time. Trying to describe interiors. I feel the like Australian tall poppy need to mention that I'm renting. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Isn't that sad? Isn't that so sad? It's a lovely space. You can just own the space. It's like yeah, guys, well, I, I well. literally can't own the space. That's <laughs> such a problem. The first question we always ask Clem is what are you reading, watching or listening to at the moment that you would recommend to other people? Okay. Well, what I'm watching at the moment is Morning Wars nice. on Apple TV. Um, and I'm really enjoying it actually. It's not I know it's had some sort of mixed reviews, but, you know, it's not highbrow entertainment and it's kind of heavy-handed in parts, but I really enjoy the dynamic between Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon. I love Reese Witherspoon. I think she's probably got some, like, fucked-up views on some things. But, you know, I really like that she has created a production company. She's trying to do really interesting female roles and she provides interesting female roles for, you know, her contemporaries. And I think she's, she's great in that respect. So I'm enjoying that show. And I've been listening to Georgia Mac's new album, Georgia Mac from Camp Cope. Um, so I think her album came out in early December. And it's, yeah, it's really beautiful. She's got an amazing voice and it's very soulful and poetic and obviously about heartbreak. And I'm all about that. So Zara um, will be very happy, by the way, that you mentioned Morning Wars before because Zara has been binging it. And yeah. And I, love, about it. and I love people's admission that they love Reese Witherspoon. Like I feel like yeah. there's this idea that Reese Witherspoon's a little basic or if you <laughs> like her, she's a little basic. And yes, you're you're right. She probably has some like probably quirky views well, about does. things. I mean, Truly. but that's, that's sexism, isn't it? Isn't you know, it's it? internalized misogyny that you can't like Reese Witherspoon because she's associated with 
what like Legally Blonde was, which is actually a very feminist film. Or even just that she picks up books that people tend to think are chick lit, like yeah. a lot of Leanne Moriarty's books. And I think that there's such a lack of respect for those books too. Yeah. Well, because anything to do with women's stories or complicated kind of human d- dynamics, it's only becomes important if a man's written it. Mm. Do you read a lot given you write a lot? I don't read anywhere near as much as I would like to because partly because I do use the excuse that I'm always writing and, you know, reading pieces for my writing. But I also think it's just, we've just all got terrible attention spans these days. My phone is the worst bloody cock block when it comes to books, <laughs> you know. It's a good way to put it. It's I terrible. Am reading one thing on your little makeshift bookshelf, Anatomy of an Actor, Tom Cruise. <laughs> what the hell is that? My friend bought that for me because we're both unashamed Tom Cruise what? fanatics. Yeah, Are you kidding? Of, I'm full of layers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like an onion. I love Tom Cruise. Why? Tom Cruise is bonkers. Sell him to me. He's clearly a terrible human for being involved in the Church of Scientology. But he is one of the last great true movie stars. He is a movie star. Interesting. I think he's an he's an amazing actor. Um, <laughs> honestly, even Top Gun's a brilliant film. This isn't a terrible sell. I agree. You can also like people without loving every part of them. I just Michelle? think that he's... I'm on the Tom Cruise yeah, bandwagon. I now. just think that he's, you know... Uh, I don't expect anything more from Tom Cruise than what I get, which is pure unfiltered Tom Cruise, you know, couch jumping and all. I rewatched um, Top Gun again recently because I love that film. And, you know, it's really, I mean, it's obviously, it's a celebration of patriotism and the American war machine, but it's very odd to come across like a bro down film from the eighties that doesn't use like terribly homophobic language or sexist language. The fact that he falls in love with you know, the flight instructor mm-hmm. who's this, you know, incredible, like an astrophysicist or mm-hmm. something. And she's also a little bit older than him. I mean, obviously Tom Cruise's love interests have always stayed exactly the same age, <laughs> even as he's aged. But he, um, Because he looks the same. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's, it's sort of like watching it and there's all the beautiful homoeroticism in it. It's I just think that it's a classic film and... I'm sold on Tom Cruise. I like him. I've I'm been, pro Tom. I've been like nudged more towards Tom. I think I'm Tom Cruise adjacent. <laughs> I don't think I'm a fan and I'm not, not a fan. We do want to ask you, we ask every In Conversation guest, what was your childhood like? You grew up in Adelaide, is that right? I, actually, I grew up in the Middle East. Oh. I grew up in Oman. Um, my dad worked in, he was an engineer, worked in oil. I know it's a terrible thing to admit, but he did. And we moved to, I was born in Queensland in Miles, a town in Western Queensland. And then we moved to England very briefly when I was like two or something. And then when I was three, we moved to to Dubai for a year and then to Oman. And I was there until I was 12. And then we moved back to England. And then I didn't arrive in Adelaide until I was 15. Oh my God. So I had like my formative adolescent or late adolescence, you know, entering adulthood in Adelaide. But, uh, yeah. What was that moving around like, particularly to the Middle East? I mean, it was just my life. So I have no idea what it would would have been like to grow up in Australia um, or to grow up in the same house my whole life or to, like, have gone to school with the same people my whole life. I don't know what it's like to have grandparents who live in the same town as you or whatever. So it's just your life, you know. Mm. And I feel really fortunate because Oman is a beautiful country and – it was a really great place to grow up. You know, we beautiful beaches and 
amazing culture, delicious food. Yeah, it's, you know, sort of I feel an affinity for the desert and for the, just everything that I, I had growing up there mm. is very close to me. But it's weird because I can never go back. And not because of, you know, travel. Of course, I could physically travel there. But I've been away from there for 25 years and it's changed so much in that time, as all places do. So, but I've, no, I've not been there to see the changes or kind of absorb them as they're happening. So it's my childhood in that sense, even the physical landscape of it is somewhere that can never be returned to, which mm. is sort of an interesting thing to kind of sit with. What are the memories that stand out from your childhood? I mean, we really liked to go to... Actually, some of my best memories from childhood involve my family. When I was... I'm the youngest of three kids and when I was about eight years old, my parents taught my older sister how to play. They used to love this this card game called Brocco, which is like a variation on Canasta and you play it for hours. It's epic. And they taught my sister how to play it and my brother and I were sort of like... We knew that at some stage we were going to be initiated into the fold... And so when they finally decided to teach us this game, it just became this like great family tradition. So all through summer we would stay up, you know, when even when I was really young, we would stay up all night listening to musical theatre. And, I mean, we came from a very dramatic family. <laughs> um, <laughs> listening to musical theatre and playing, like, these epic games of cards. And uh, so that sort of stuff, I think, is just... I really associate strongly with my childhood. You know, also, like I said, going to the beach. I mean, that's a pretty classic kind of Australian thing as well, even though we weren't there. But I suppose as I kind of entered teenagehood, I found this photograph of myself the other day that was from when I was about 11 or 12. And it just breaks my heart because I just look at that, you know, little unsure, insecure girls staring out from the photo and it just you can see I mean when I was 12 I sort of developed an eating disorder and as so many of us do and you know entered some really really hard years of like self-loathing and not telling anyone what was going on and keeping all these secrets to yourself and you can just see that kind of beginning in the eyes in this photograph and it just made me really sad because my childhood wasn't like that at all it was very free and unencumbered and I had so much confidence and it's just this terrible thing that happens to girls around that age where we just kind of collapse in on ourselves and develop all of this sadness it's a real kind of loneliness and isolation even especially that element of a eating disorder or disordered eating patterns where you don't let anyone in that it does you'd feel so isolated from the world around you and everything's changing so rapidly we did want to ask you about that eating disorder how long did it last for and what kind of led to that point do you remember well I guess it's not like I woke up one day and decided I'm gonna have an eating disorder you know so many of your listeners will have this exact same experience that whether or not it's it's a disorder or just disordered eating that I just suddenly became aware that my body was on display and I you know I was a chubby kid and I correctly identified that my the the body shape that I had would be found wanting and when I say correctly identified, I don't mean that I was correct, that it was wanting, but that just this is the judgment that we all face. And I just, 
I was deeply unhappy. We'd just moved from Oman to England, so I felt really out of sorts anyway. It was sort of the worst time in the world to, to move countries and schools when you're 12 years old. I didn't feel like I fit in with anyone. I didn't understand the, the different sort of social behaviours. You know, growing up in the Middle East was quite sheltered in lots of ways. And I moved suddenly to this sort of tiny seaside town where, you know, girls my my age were, weren't doing the things that I was doing, you know, before I came there, which was still probably playing with Barbie dolls. But, you know, they were smoking in the park and they were kissing boys and they were drinking alcohol and, and all that stuff seemed really wild and exciting to me, but also just very scary. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know how I was going to fit in because I, I, I could see that even though all of my peers the same age as me, we were all, all the same age, they had moved on to this world beyond that I just felt like I had no access to. So partly it wasn't just about, you know, I didn't, I didn't kind of like seek to change myself through this like terribly destructive, these terribly destructive patterns just to kind of enter that world, but because I had no control over the world I was living in. And I think that that's one of the things that kind of ties a lot of our experiences together when it comes to, you know, the ways that we seek to damage and change our bodies in order to quote unquote fit in is actually that it just speaks to the lack of control that we feel like we have over our lives and, and the way that people see us. And this is the one thing that we can control and we can feel how it's, how we're in control of it because it, we're literally hungry mm. all the time mm. and, or punishing ourselves or physically emptying ourselves of anything that might make us feel full or whatever. So it kind of developed rapidly, but slowly, mm. And I don't know, in all honesty, I know you're supposed to sort of say, you know, oh, and it lasted like five years or then I got better or then I recovered. But I don't know. Do you really ever recover from something like that? We all live in a patriarchy and even though you can grow up and get wiser and recognise why these patterns were established and recognise your own thinking that still persists, you actually can't – I am I at least find it very difficult to sever – my 38-year-old thinking from my 12-year-old girl thinking, even though I can, I can logically dismantle it all. So I don't know. You can Do kind you of like, I think you can intellectualize it to a certain point, but it's so emotional and so, as you said, tied to so many different things that I don't think I used to have eating disorder behavior. I mean, it was never diagnosed at the time, but retrospectively, my psychologist has said yes you did when I was probably between the ages like 18 and 22 was a really bad Mm. phase but even now and I've said this on the podcast before sometimes I need to verbalize it to Mitch or my boyfriend or Zara and say my eating's a bit weird and I'm saying it out loud so that someone else can know Mm. and as soon as I say it now I can kind of be like okay that's bad I'm gonna really think about this and why I'm doing it but Mm. sometimes I find myself slipping into it and I need to actually put it out into the world to be like okay I've got to put myself back in do you even now find yourself doing that or? Oh, I don't think I've got anywhere near as healthy response habits as you seem to, but mm. yeah, definitely. I go to a low um, therapy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that one of the problems is that, you know, no one, certainly no one looked at me and said something bad is happening to you. Instead, I was just surrounded by praise from people because I, I lost a lot of weight and my family, bless them. I love them very much, but they came to raising me with all of their own baggage about bodies and their response to weight loss has always been positive reinforcement praise and to weight gain has been do you really need that second helping should you be eating that you know you need to you need to start watching what you eat etc 
I mean, that stuff, again, like you said, you can intellectualize it and you can logically kind of dismantle it in your head, but it's a very Pavlovian response to want your loved ones to see you as having some sense of value. So that's been a really difficult thing for me to overcome is this sense of not in other people, but in, in myself, how value is connected with the way that I look. And I also think that one of the reasons why it's so difficult to identify these patterns in girls is because misogyny and patriarchy has made it so usual and normal to see girls as soon as they hit adolescence start to count calories or watch what they eat or, you know, for women to always be on a diet or to say stupid things like, oh, go on, let's have the cake. Let's be naughty today. Um, Cheat day. Cheat day. (laughs) Guilty pleasure. All of these things are are totally socialised as normal behaviours for women to participate in and, in fact, worthwhile and admirable behaviours because, again, it indicates that we have control over this one important part of our life which is the way that we look and the way that we present to other people how we flatter others in particular the male gaze how we flatter it with our willingness to control and shape and minimize our bodies in order to please it and interestingly it's also one of the few things that we can exert control over because we're not allowed to be controlling at work we're not allowed to be controlling in conversation or controlling in social situations we're not allowed to be you know, quote unquote aggressive or bossy or dominate a room. But we can be controlling when it comes to the ways that we control our bodies and what goes in and out of our bodies and the ways that we kind of exhibit control as mothers. So, I mean, just throwing that kind of like spanner in there. But but these are the things that we're allowed to be proud of. We're allowed to be proud of our bodies or, or, no, sorry, let me rephrase that. We're allowed to be proud of the hard work that we've put into our bodies. We can never just be proud of our bodies as they Ooh, are. Oh, not all bodies, no. no, no, no. <laughs> and we're allowed to be proud of, you know, like dedicating ourselves completely and entirely to our children. Hmm. What do you think helped craft your activism so much? Were you an opinionated kid? Were you an opinionated teenager? Did you sit around a dinner table and talk to your family about issues? Like where did this start, do you think? I was very opinionated, even though I was also very insecure. I mean, I wouldn't have had a problem expressing myself to my family, but I definitely went through a period in my early teen years where I was terrified of saying what I thought about anything, terrified of people not liking me, of rocking the boat. I felt so physically even though of course I can look on look at photographs of myself now and go what were you thinking you know not not even in terms of like you were beautiful or whatever but I physically felt like a hulk like I must have been like eight foot tall and the size of the building that we're in now and I don't I don't mean that as any kind of commentary on physical on physicality but just in terms of the space that you feel like you take up like Mm. I really deeply absorbed that sense that I needed to make myself as small as possible physically but also emotionally and intellectually in order to not kind of startle anyone with my presence, you know, that in order for for them to be okay with me being wherever I was, I needed to like basically be invisible, which is a very common feeling for a lot of people, you know, whether or not, you know, I'm sure it's common for boys too. But in my, obviously in my house, you know, felt very different because I, I didn't have those same insecurities. So I kind of had this weird duality of being terribly afraid of expressing my opinion to my peers, but also kind of exercising this very crude feminism at home where I, I, 
I responded mainly to like the expectations that my brother do different things from me and my sister. You know, that it was always my, my dad would always finish dinner by saying, you know, okay, right girls time to do the dishes. And I would get very mad about the fact that my brother was never made to do any of these things. I mean, it's, it seems like such a small thing when there's so many bigger things going on. But it's where it starts, right? Well, that's where it starts for a lot of people. And it's also, something hasn't, doesn't have to be the biggest thing in the world in order for it to be wrong, Mm. you know? And Yes, in my like very comfortable middle class home, my sister and I suffered this minor kind of expression of patriarchy. But at the same time, girls all over the world perform the vast bulk of unpaid domestic labor and suffer much bigger consequences because of that. And it all speaks to this idea that this is the realm of women, you know, that that we just need to absorb this labor in order to make the men around us comfortable. Mm. So I used to really rail against that. And instead of listening to what I had to say, my dad would just get angry in response and then we would fight and it would just, and then of course I learned that when you speak up for yourself, you're the one who is causing the problem and you're the one who's making things uncomfortable for everyone and making things, why do you have to ruin the family dinner, etc. Yeah. Coming up on the show, how motherhood has changed Clementine Ford's life. But first a word from our sponsors. I am interested, this is a question we get a lot from our own listeners about our own lives in that, do you have a boundary between your social and political beliefs and your relationships? Because sometimes I find it difficult to associate with people around me and loved ones if we have very conflicting beliefs, but also sometimes you need to just ignore that for the Mm. greater good and for the health of that relationship. Do you struggle with that? Is that something that you've encountered? I think everyone struggles with that to some extent if they have very strong political views. But, okay, for example, I would never date someone who had political views that I found abhorrent or even... I I don't even want to date someone who considers themselves apolitical. You know, if they have no political views, I'm not interested. Mm. And I certainly wouldn't tolerate... You know, I get get pretty upset because I'm often contacted by women of all ages actually who want to know how they can talk to their boyfriends or their husbands about feminism because they're great he's great don't get me wrong he's great they say to me he's wonderful but he just thinks that feminism's bullshit and he laughs at me when I talk to him about it and I'm like well he's clearly not great then he you like him in some respects but he fundamentally doesn't respect your existence or the things that you care about so he's not great so I would never date someone who I felt that way about or I felt like, oh, we better not have that conversation because that's going to make things awkward between us. And I don't really want to be friends with people like that either. You know, Mm. I can sort of be acquaintances, I guess, or or work with people professionally who I can kind of make some allowances for. But it becomes a lot more complicated when it's your own blood. Mm. Of course, I've got family members. Thankfully, not a lot of them, but I've got family members who whose opinions vary drastically from my own. And you look, it's it's on the public record that my dad is one of them. And it's complicated. Mm. I mean that's the that's the most honest answer I can give mm. because I love my dad. Mm. And I also don't I've only got one parent left. My mum died 12 years ago and I it's been a, there's been a f- fraught few years because of various you know, personal, private things that have gone on in our family. And I just feel like the decision that I've made 
is to continue to love my dad and to continue to try and talk to him about some of the things that we disagree on rather than just saying, wiping my hands and going, well, I'll just send him out into the world and he can keep thinking that way. You know. It's tricky. It's hard. And it's common. I think the interesting thing about the internet is, and particularly because all of your work is on the internet now, is it literally lives there forever. And we wanted to ask you about your relationship with regret and if there was anything online or anything that you've ever done that you thought you know what I wish I could kind of rephrase that or change that because I think even with doing this podcast I have so much regret sometimes mm-hmm. twice a week online. you sometimes look back at the things you said and you're like I could have done that better do you ever spend time thinking about that or do you think it's a waste of energy I don't think it's a waste of energy I think it's a really productive use of energy actually I think as uncomfortable as it can be to have a public record of things that you've said that you disagree with now or that you or that you're thinking has changed on it's also really we're really privileged to be able to have that record to be able to go and reflect on the things that reflect on how our views have changed and evolved I mean the idea that somehow someone is born in a bubble of complete understanding and awareness and that they've never they've never had to go through any kind of political or personal growth at all I mean obviously that's ridiculous but congratulations to that person Mm. It's one of the things that is a bit frustrating about cancel culture as opposed to call out or call in culture because I think that some of the people who participate in cancel culture would have exactly the same level of privilege as me and have come to their understanding at a certain point in their life as opposed to having always understood things to be that way and yet it's almost as if they forget that there was this whole period of learning and education that they benefited from and change that they went through and allowances that people made for them. And and not everyone needs to make allowances, of course. You know, there's, I, I don't think anyone who comes from any kind of marginalised group is obliged to educate the people who are benefiting from their marginalisation. But, for example, one of the reasons why I, why it's really important to me to continue to talk to my dad about these things is because that maybe is my job. Mm. You know, it's not the job of people who are actually affected by some of his views. It's my job. And I think that more people should remember that we're all kind of participating in this journey that we call life. (laughs) But actually that it's a real privilege to be able to recognise where we've gone wrong Mm. and and commit to changing our behaviour going forward. Mm. One thing I love about your presence online is that you bring really important conversations onto Instagram, not just Twitter as well. And sometimes I find that there's a group of people on Twitter who are having really important conversations, but they kind of happen nowhere else. Was that an intentional decision that you were going to be quite political on Instagram or is it just natural? It's the stuff you want to talk about and no matter where you are, that will come out organically. Yeah, I think probably it's just who I am, you know, and one of the things that I really like about Instagram is that it is somewhere that it's probably my favorite social media platform. Mine too. As it is so many. <laughs> um, because I think that it's, it allows for, you know, no, well, very few people on Instagram ever come to me and get mad at me for, you know, focusing on something that they deem frivolous. Mm-hmm. Whereas on Twitter, I'll often write about, I'll often tweet about reality TV and, quite often then was it married at first sight that you got grilled for talking about earlier this year oh probably that one it could have been i mean you i watch it all great, so get some great <laughs> tweets married at first sight whatever it is you know i i feel like the work that i do in my day-to-day life is fairly intense and distressing and i just want to tune out at the end of the day 
But, you know, yeah, I'll, I'll tweet about it and people respond by saying things like, well, why are you tweeting about this bloody rubbish? Why aren't you tweeting about what's going on in China right now? <laughs> I'm like, because I don't fucking know what's going on in China right now because I'm not an expert on that aspect of the world. Let me tell you about the maths dinner party. (laughs) But Instagram is a place where you can do something that's really, really political, but you can also be like, look at this beautiful dress that I just bought. Look at my pink Christmas tree. And I like how it kind of, because one of the things that I think is really infuriating, and I'm sure you guys agree, about, I guess, the way that we kind of like frame feminism in pop culture is that it's not unfeminist to like, frilly things and I don't just mean like physically frilly things but it's not unfeminist to like pop culture it's not unfeminist to participate in things that have been deemed stupid because they're girly Mm. you know it's unfeminist to suggest that somehow these things are inherently ridiculous because women like them you know it's one of the examples that I like to use is that Okay, the Beatles is like the greatest rock and roll band of all time. The Beatles birthed modern music, blah, blah, blah. Like every fucking man in their 50s who just loves the Beatles and they can tell you all about John (laughs) Lennon and the White Album and blah, blah, blah. I mean, I don't even really love the Beatles that much. (laughs) We can tell. (laughs) Do you know who created the Beatles? Teenage girls. Teenage girls created the Beatles. Middle-aged men would never have had the opportunity to love the Beatles if teenage girls and their epic fucking thirst for the Beatles hadn't created that band. So I just feel like oftentimes this is what happens is that girls actually have a very keenly attuned sense of what is cool and what isn't. And they decide it and then it's decided by other people whether or not they're right. It's like the before the zeitgeist and then the zeitgeist follows a little bit. Yeah, I mean, why do people now shame teenage girls for loving One Direction, you know? Like somehow to love boy bands. If, you're, if, if, if a band made up primarily of men is loved almost primarily by women, that band must be shit because girls have shit taste in music except for obviously when they create a band that then becomes loved predominantly by men. I know this is probably the most common question that you get, but given we're talking about Instagram and Twitter, I wanted to ask you about trolling, hate and criticism because it's you're quite public about the stuff that you do get. But what I find interesting is I want to know how you manage to process all of it because it's not just criticism that you get. I think anyone in the public eye gets some form of criticism. It can be vicious and aggressive. So what do you do with it? Like how do you process it? Have you taught yourself different tools over the years in order to do so? I think one of the best things that I do is just share it, you know, and share it with humour because that's been the key difference for me. Like I don't – it doesn't really upset me personally. It doesn't sting me to see some of the things that people say to me, but it does obviously on a macro level upset me that men still respond to women in this way. But the best response I've found is to just kind of like offer it up to everyone else to laugh at and make it ridiculous, you know, make it small and – silly and do you feel like it's bringing a whole heap of people onto your team yeah I think so but I also think that it so firstly it has the effect of showing people who might think that women exaggerate that actually they're not exaggerating this is stuff that gets sent to them it also shows that men often say these things privately and get angry when they're exposed for it because they're not you're not supposed to expose them because women are trained to keep men's men's secrets for them and to not embarrass or shame them in front of the public But I also feel like what it does is it encourages women who maybe don't have 
the power that I have to be able to kind of platform it to, you know, a certain number of people, it still encourages them to kind of respond to it in that way, you know, to not just kind of absorb it and not feel small and ashamed because of it and not to close down their social media accounts or whatever the response might be, but to actually kind of look at it for what it is, which is the small, sad ramblings of an insecure man who, for whatever reason, participates in this fiction that men are just more logical and rational than women and that they just get on with things when we all know that the most sensitive person on the internet is a white man aged between 15 and 40. (laughs) You Mm. said in a Guardian article, I think it was from 2016 or 2017, you said, there's no point implicating these people. I don't think it works. We do want to talk to you about that because that's not necessarily a popular line of thinking, but it's definitely a strong one. Why do you think implicating people isn't an effective method? Well, what does it achieve? You know, there's no point when I say there's no point implicating men. I don't, and I don't just mean trolls. I mean, there's no point implicating men about feminism because all it does is give them a reason to think that they're not part of the problem. And they might not be someone who's actively perpetuating the problem, but they're benefiting from the problem. All men benefit from patriarchy. And all white people benefit from racism. All able-bodied people benefit from ableism. You know, there's, it's just, it's ridiculous to try and pretend otherwise. So what they have to do is be, what we all have to do if we experience that privilege is to decide every day to be active in challenging it and not just saying, well, it's nothing to do with me. I'm not doing it. So therefore I can kind of just ignore the problem because that is actually perpetuating it. And I feel like placating people does that. And it also it kind of goes back to this, particularly where um, feminism and fighting misogyny is concerned, it goes back to the sense of women being the carers, that we need to kind of take the softly, softly approach or trick men into somehow not being oppressive or abusive towards us by, by sort of softly like stroking their knee or their shoulder. It's something my mum used to do, which used to really annoy me, was that, you know, the... The the times when I did have these huge blowouts with my dad about my brother not, you know, getting away with not ever doing any chores around the house. She, I remember one time in particular, she came up to me, I was in the kitchen doing the dishes after this huge fight. And she came up and she said to me, Clementine, it's just that I know I can trust you. If I left Toby to do it, then I would just have to do them myself. I'd have to redo them myself. And I just thought, because you make it easy for him to get away with it because you're placating him you're saying that you know it's okay softly softly darling you you just go and do your own thing whereas if I did a shitty job I'd be made to do it again you know and it's again like reminds me of the times that I was maybe having an argument with my dad and my mum would sort of like put her hand on my knee under the table and she'd kind of stroke it as if to say you know don't worry I'll I'll sort this out later just sort it out now, you know. It's just kind of like I know I'm, I'm painting my dad as this tyrant. He's really he's actually not a tyrant at all. He's very gentle in lots of ways, but we we are so conditioned as women to make sure that men never feel embarrassed, never feel angry, and some of those obviously are due to safety reasons, and that's a different story altogether. But you know, even like laughing at men's jokes because we don't want them to feel like they've bored us somehow, because it's our job to respond to the male gaze and to and to play the role that we've been cast in and understood ourselves to be in from adolescence, which is to flatter men with our existence and our praise. 
There was this really interesting line of thought that you spoke about with Will Anderson on your philosophy interview with him. And it was this idea that we spend so much time placating men when we're talking about feminism that we almost do this job where we're trying to convince them that if the patriarchy was dismantled, nothing would actually change yeah. for them. When in reality, if we sort of dismantle the patriarchy a bit, things are going to change yeah. for them. And implicating, we're kind of giving them this sense of false hope. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, I think that sometimes the way that... Okay, so a good example, I know that the White Ribbon Organisation in Australia is disbanded now. Good. But consider for a moment the morning teas that used to be held that were all organised by women, um, certainly all catered by women, clean-up and everything would have been done by women. Um, and they invited men, of course, who for this one, men of their organisations who for one day of the year got to stand up on stage and be celebrated for, you know, just how amazingly supportive they were of women in their organisation and how, look, they're wearing a white ribbon, so of course they don't agree with violence against women. And I, rem- I think that that's a good analogy that, you know, these we sort of conduct these elaborate parades to thank men for doing the bare minimum or and sometimes the bare minimum is literally just not killing us so we you know conduct these elaborate parades to thank them and I always think okay so what happens when let's say they work and we establish a world in which women are no longer being murdered by men at a rate of one a week or sexually assaulted or you know paid less or whatever it might be at what point can we stop having the morning teas? Because can we turn around and say, right, well, we've got equality now. Can we can we just do away with this celebration of you every year? Because by that stage, men are used to it. And they think, well, that doesn't seem very fair if you take that away from me. You know, and to sort of put it in even more practical terms, anyone who says that equality, like our own esteemed prime minister saying that equality for women shouldn't come at the expense of men, well, I'm sorry, it's going to bloody have to because if you look at the government of Australia that is predominantly made up by white middle-aged men, certainly in the Liberal Party, you can't actually achieve any kind of representative democracy or equality within that if those people continue to fulfil those roles. That's not equality. Someone's right got to give up their seat. Exactly. Yeah. They literally have to give up their seat. <laughs> there and are to, a certain number. <laughs> and to continue to argue, well, it should be based on merit, are you saying that Are you saying that the most meritorious Australians currently are white middle-aged men born into privilege? We know they're the smartest. (laughs) And the strongest. (laughs) So so actually people need to get their head around this, that equality represents a loss for some people and it represents a loss of power, a loss of privilege and a loss of unfair and uneven representation. That's just redistributing power. Mm. So we can't actually – there's no point in – not being honest about that. There's no point in pretending that somehow all we need is men to give their nominal kind of emotional support to the equality project. Do nothing for it, by the way, but just give their nominal support for it. And then once we, the women, have done the hard work of achieving equality for ourselves, they'll be unscathed because we're not man-haters. You know, we don't want them to hurt. It's like this idea that somehow they could actually have to that the world might the world as it's changing for women might also by necessity require change from them the fact that they can view that as oppression just shows how blinkered they are about their own privilege and their own you know position in society you have been unflinching in the work that you have done and when Zara and I were coming up with our questions one that we kept coming back to is where does that sense of inner strength 
come from because I don't think I would be able to do it. I know, I know that I'm strong, but I think you possess such a level of bravery in the work that you do and the stuff that you cop for it along the way. What is that? Where does that come from within you? Oh, I don't know. I guess maybe, you know, practice, um, a sense of – I'm not very brave when it comes to other things. Yes. You know, I've got a lot of insecurities and a lot of – my private life is riddled with terrible fear about, you know, my own value and my own worth and, you know, romance and I have all the same – problems as any other woman who's been raised in a patriarchy and who thinks that they'll never be good enough but publicly I guess I just have a very strong sense that what I'm saying and doing is right and I I kind of the more people get angry about it the more determined I am to agitate them further I guess and also there's no there's only so much mud that can be flung at you before you just literally no more mud will stick. You feel like you know. Teflon. Yeah. 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 I mean, the, you're, when you're, once you're covered in mud, the mud cannot touch you anymore. <laughs> what so you, they may as well just keep throwing it. What do you think the biggest misconception about you is? I think that the biggest misconception about me is the one that I also care about the least. And that is that I somehow hate men. And when I say I care about it the least, it's because I find it such a boring topic. I hate hearing other feminists reassure people that they don't hate men. It's such a redundant, who cares if they hate men? You know, firstly, a lot of women have been given a lot of really good reasons to hate men. And one of the major reasons is that they probably have been fucking raped by one of them or multiple men. They might've been abused by them or beaten by them or just, just undermined their entire lives. There are really good reasons that women have to hate men. Also, women hating men has really very little political power. Whether or not I hate men is irrelevant to whether or not men are, continue, are going to continue being elevated into positions of power above women, are going to continue hurting women, are going to continue being paid more than women, are going to continue not doing their domestic share around the house. My hatred or not hatred for men has no bearing on that whatsoever. So I find it a really ridiculous and manipulative thing that, it's a distraction that as long as women who are agitating for their own liberation are distracted by this ridiculous question of whether or not, you know, men's ego, whether or not we hate them or not, we're actually not, we're devoting time away from the real cause to again, placating men and saying, don't worry, it's not about you. But the reason I say that that's probably the biggest misconception about me is that I think a lot of the work that I do is quite loving towards men. And I might make jokes about men and I might, needle them and you know ridicule them or mock them uh, or mocks you know male fragility and toxic masculinity to sort of be distinct from those two things but I actually think that the world I want to create and work with others to create is one in which men are not going to be bloody killing themselves all the time they're not going to be absorbing the sense of needing to be stoic they won't yes they might we might work towards a world in which more women are able to lead uh, or you know I don't, I don't see equality as being something where we just take the world as it exists now and re-establish who gets to kind of run it like we need there's it needs to be a lot more kind of dismantling than that but if we remove the pressure from men to be the fucking breadwinners and be the ones who are making all of the money to support their families and that kind of like 
horrible sense of fear that if they can't do that, that somehow they failed as a man, that helps men. You know, if we create a world in which more men are expected to spend significant amounts of time with their children, that helps men. I don't want men to be shamed for their sexuality or for their the ways that they present themselves as men or I want men to be able to bloody hug each other and not just when their football team wins or loses, you know, but to have genuine physical platonic intimacy with each other in the same way that women are able to experience with each other, like platonic touch. So I feel like that's the biggest misconception about me is that, and it, it I guess kind of comes back to this fear that, a world in which feminism is successful, in which gender liberation can truly occur, is one that, yes, it will change the world for men in ways that might be scary to them because at least they understand how the power works now. And for as much as they might be disadvantaged by it, they're also hugely benefited by it. But I look at my son, who's three years old, and how soft he is and gentle and how he runs to his friends at childcare and hugs them. And, you know, every day he asks, is Ernie going to be there, his best friend at childcare and these two beautiful little boys? And they always see each other and run to each other and cuddle. And that's going to probably change in about three years' time. By the time he's six years old, that's horrible, you know? So I think that's, that's something that I wish people understood that what I'm trying to do is actually save men. I'm not trying to hurt them. I'm trying to save them. Mm. Talk to us about the change that your son has brought to your life. Oh, that makes me want to cry. It's just hard to explain. I mean, it's frustrating and demanding in lots of ways, but I just don't, you know, without sort of saying like, oh, you'll never understand love until you understand the love between a mother and a child. I don't believe that. Obviously, people understand love in so many different kinds of love. But the experience I've had of that particular kind of love has been transformative for me. Because I don't think I've ever really experienced unconditional love in that sense before. Unconditional, sacrificial love. Like, I remember before, years before I got before I had a baby, I had this dream one night. Um, and in the dream, this baby was there and it wasn't, it wasn't biologically mine, but somehow I became in charge of this baby. Like it's their parents weren't there or something. And the baby just became mine in this dream. And at first I was like really reticent to kind of, I didn't want to have this baby. I didn't see it was my responsibility. But then at some point in the dream, I remember having this incredibly lucid. I still remember it now years later, what it felt like this lucid, sense of looking at the baby and suddenly knowing I would die to protect you. I would throw myself in front of a car to protect you, like not even think about it for a second. And I remember waking up and thinking that must be what it feels like to have a child. And that's how I feel now, you know, that just, I still, you know, care about my life and my ego very deeply. I'm pretty selfish in lots of ways, but to have something there that is, just I just perceive as being so much bigger and more important than me has been pretty bloody educational and wanting to watch him grow and be a good person and I don't know it's just it's like the the most interesting project I've ever done but it's one that is also the most heartbreaking because I can never capture every second of it you know there's no all the photos in the world aren't gonna take you back to 
what it feels like to look at them on this one particular day and then the next day they're bigger and they've changed somehow you know it's it's beautiful it's heartbreaking and beautiful with all of that in mind what is success to you and what do you tie it to oh you know I think that I've had a degree of success that I'm very grateful for so I have to acknowledge that before I try and make it to you know wishy-washy an answer obviously you could say success is like me being happy with myself whenever I wake up it's being it's having a great relationship with my son it's having good friends it's blah 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 it's this or that the other but I think that that's you know it's unrealistic to say that success is also not something that we we track in terms of our career progress very happy with how I've been able to make things happen for myself and um there's been a lot of you know, I'm, trying to, I'm thinking of Jamila's book, Not Just Lucky, but there has been a lot of luck or being in the right place at the right time, using my opportunities wisely. A lot of privilege obviously involved in it too. So success to me is is kind of wrapped up in, you know, I'm a single mom. I've got to like pay my own bills. The fact that I can do that and the fact that I was able to make that choice I think is a sign of the the sort of, um, definable success that I've had but I don't know I guess success success isn't something that I think I could wake up one day and go I'm successful you know and you, you guys are probably the same you know high achievers that are continually looking to the next thing that you want to do or where to you know where do I take this now you know it's, a, it's an endless pursuit success mm. Clementine, you have been such a delight. Thank you Thank for making you. the time for us. I have loved sitting here and listening to you speak. <laughs> I feel so selfish that it's our work day because we can just like suck up all your wisdom for the sake of a <laughs> podcast episode. But thank you. And thank you for all the work you do. I feel like you're on the, fl- the front line of a lot of the work that a lot of young women want to do. So thank oh, you so much. Thank you both so much. It's honestly such a thrill to be invited onto your enormously bloody <laughs> successful podcast, <laughs> by the way. Congratulations to you. It's amazing. <laughs> We're blushing. <laughs> I'm just going to take it off. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with Clementine Ford. If you loved listening to Clem as much as we loved soaking in her wisdom, you can find her on Instagram at Clementine underscore Ford. We will put links to buy both of her books, Fight Like a Girl and Boys Will Be Boys, in our show notes. As for us, well, as always, we're at Shameless Podcast on Instagram. We will see you guys on Monday. Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse. If you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. 
there is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.